0: Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon.: Would you open your Bibles up this morning to Romans chapter eight, the verse, chapter eight the verse twenty four verses twenty four and twenty five um, This is our text this morning as we continue to go through uh, the book of Romans. And this is the Word of God, and it is eternally true. Romans chapter 8, verses 24 and 25. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. This is the Word of the Lord. Let us pray, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart here be acceptable in your sight, you who are our strength and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We have seen that our spirit, our internal witness, is united with the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, that we are God's children. There is not a diversity of witness or disagreement or point, counterpoint, between our spirit and the spirit of God on this point. We are God's children. We are the adopted children of God. This is the testimony given us by God in verse 17. And if children, what? Well, then heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So it's not just that we're God's children, but it is that we have a heritage, an unbelievable heritage. Inheritance coming to us. But of course, an inheritance is off in the future, right? So this brings us wonderful benefits. Since we're God's sons, God's children, we're his heirs, and being God's children and his heirs, we will inherit alongside God's son, who is Jesus Christ. So we have the inheritance that Jesus Christ has. But then there's a stipulation. There's a limitation. There is a chain, choke chain yank on all this good stuff that's coming to us. And what is the stipulation? Well, it says in verse 17, if children heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, and then an if. If, indeed, we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. In other words, we're not going to get the good stuff if we don't suffer with Jesus. Did you hear what I said? If you refuse to wear the shame of your parents on social media, if you try to distance yourself from the shame of what your parents believe on social media, if you try to differentiate yourself from your parents who honor God, if you're ashamed of your parents who honor God, if if you are... Did I say it yet? I'm not sure. If you're ashamed of your parents who honor God, did I say that? You are refusing to suffer with Jesus Christ. You're just like Peter. What did Peter do? Oh Lord, even if I die, I'll never, but I'll never deny you, never, ah, ah. And a little slave girl comes along. I had nothing to do with him. Says he cursed. You know, lending emphasis to his denial. You know, maybe I throw out a few f- swear words, she'll believe me. This, this intimidating girl, slave girl. Big bad Peter. <laughs> you know. Now, I'm not sure if I said this yes. But if you are ashamed of your parents and what they believe on social media, can I make it clear to you that you are violating the stipulation of being a son of God? And therefore, you will not get the goodies. Okay? Have I said that yet? Are there any children here? Any children? I don't see any hands. Any children? You know, you're all children. Every one of you is a child, actually. If you refuse to identify yourself with the Christian faith of your parents on social media, you will not inherit the blessings of the sons of God. Have I made myself clear? If indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Now, the Apostle Paul knows about this time that we're weary, you know. It's like, oh, dude, honestly, can I please have my best life now? And so he stops at this point. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed. In other words, don't be an idiot, you know. You're not giving up anything. Whatever you're giving up, it, like, bears no resemblance to the blessings you're going to get. I mean, it's not even worth comparing, you know. Okay, so he helps us a little bit. And then he says, for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. We know the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. In other words, look, if, if, if uh, if the tree darters and the mountains and the seaweed and the goats and the sheep and the deer give witness to the suffering, Awaiting the new heaven and the new earth. Why shouldn't you? Why should you absolve yourself of the responsibility of giving witness to the fall the way that creation does? You know, what gives you the right to distance yourself from the suffering of creation? Now, you have to think biblically to comprehend that, as Stephen was making the point last week. But even the poets acknowledge it I don't remember which poet, Blake or somebody, he said, they say that God is love while all nature red in tooth and claw. Do you get it? Everybody say, oh, God is love. God is love. Jesus is love. Everybody's love. I love, you love, we love. You know? And yet all nature is red with blood in its teeth and in its claws. So God must be just. God must have wrath. Because all nature testifies to the character of God. And so he says, for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. And then verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. The whole creation... The whole creation is subjected to futility, it is enslaved to corruption. Groans and suffers the pains of childbirth right up to this very moment today. All through scripture, woman's pains in childbirth are used to illustrate great and terrible pain. Genesis 3:16 to the woman he said I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth in pain you will bring forth children. This is true even to this modern day. Women suffer the pains of childbirth that God has greatly multiplied. Mary Lee and I wanted to have a home birth, and after uh, the chief pediatric surgeon at Children's Memorial said to my parents, hospital's a very dangerous place. Yes, they should have their baby at home. And then my parents and Mary Lee's parents were like, well, if John Raffensperger said that, I guess we'll believe it, you know? So we went through every class you could imagine. We watched every little film strip. We read every book. We had practices and practices and practices of breathing and breathings and breathings and breathings. And we knew every single detail of birth by the time Heather came along. And after Mary Lee was done, and Mary Lee had an uncomplicated birth, really fairly easy. I mean, this is me speaking, right? You know, it was fairly easy as a birth, right? And when it's all, and my wife is pretty tough. My wife was cleaning houses with me up until a couple hours before she gave birth. She got done giving birth and she said, nothing we read or heard could ever have prepared me for that. And so all in Scripture, when men suffer, you know what the men are told? Your suffering is like a woman in childbearing. And so you'll read texts like this in Psalm 48.6. It says, panic seized them there, anguish as of a woman in childbirth. We have heard the report of it. Our hands are limp. Anguish has seized us. Pain as of a woman in childbirth. That's Jeremiah 6.24, and then Jeremiah 36. Ask now and see if a male can give birth. Uh, do Do we know the answer to that? Okay. Can a male give birth? The answer is, why do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth? And why have all faces turned pale and then in Micah 4.9, Now why do you cry out loudly? Is there no king among you? Or has your counselor perished? That agony has gripped you like a woman in childbirth. And so here we read, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Awaiting the new heavens and the new earth. But the apostle Paul continues, leaving all creation behind. Okay, because creation is—it doesn't have the image and glory of God, you know. And so creation testifies to the state of the world, and it's an agony like childbirth, awaiting the new heavens and the and the new earth and the revelation of the sons of God. But then he leaves creation behind, and he says, and not only this, verse 23, but we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit. In other words, we've been born again. Christians, by faith, have been born again by the Spirit of God. We have the Holy Spirit. In other words, all things have become new. Old things have passed away. Everything is new for us. He's talking about Christians who are born again, and he says, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. Waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. And so listen, brothers and sisters, again, note the constancy of this suffering in the present life in which we, together with all creation, suffer under original sin and the fall. Despite having the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, we do what? What do we do? Come on. Uh, do, uh, you know, listen, wax onomatopoetic. Come on. Come on, Stephen, you know what I'm asking you to do. Do it. Yeah. Okay, now we all do it. Come on. Oh, some of you don't have to make any noise because your face always. (laughs) So preparing to preach, you should always put yourself in my position and say, why is it hard to preach? Well, it's clear from what Scripture, Holy Scripture, says here, that the life of a Christian is what? The life of a Christian is a life of groaning. What is repentance? Repentance is spiritual groaning. Do you groan? And now, I want to say to you that the whole time I was preparing this sermon, I knew, who, I knew the mountain that I was trying to push the, the huge boulder up. And it's the mountain of evangelicalism. It's the mountain of the conservative church in America where really the, 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 the common view in churches everywhere in America today is what? Well, it's that to be a Christian is to have your best life now. That man in Houston, whose name I could not remember until I was in the middle of my first sermon, and then I remembered his name is, uh, what is it? Yeah, Joel Osteen. That man is a false shepherd. He is a charlatan. He is wicked. Why? Well, because it's completely bait and switch. If you get a circular in the mail and it says that you know Lowe's is going to sell you a Samsung French door refrigerator, for 25 cents. And you get there and they say, well, what we actually meant was $2,500. What is that? It's bait and switch. And yet pastors do it with impunity. And if I say he's a charlatan, everybody's, oh, Pastor Bailey is always hyperbolic. You know, he just doesn't know when to be calm. Listen, For pastors to tell their people that if they'll take up their cross and follow Jesus, they won't have to take up their cross and follow Jesus? How wicked is that? For pastors to teach their children in their church, their sheep and their lambs, that to be a Christian is to have your best life now? You having it, Mary? Not since motherhood. (laughs) You guys, come on, wake up. Wake up, sleepers. Kierkegaard talks about it this way. He says that doing church is to make as if Christianity is a religion that takes all the natural desires you have in yourself already and baptizes them with a little bit of scripture and a little bit of hokey pokey. In other words, what do you want? Well, what I would like is a husband who will be faithful to me and who will support me as I give myself to motherhood and homeschooling. And you know, I'm worried about my kids, and I'd like a church that gives them communion when they're six months old, because that would be reassuring to their mother. And then I'd like them baptized when they're infants. Because that would be reassuring to me. And then I would like them to never have anybody rebuke them. Because that would be scary to me. If somebody in church rebuked them, you know, that would be scary to me. And then I would like my husband to be faithful to me and to support me. And then I'd like a president who says no to homosexual marriage, and I'd like a president who gives me an awful lot of tax refunds while I'm staying home with our children. Because I'm bright and smart, and I could have earned a lot of money. And I want a president that defends the First Amendment rights. My husband should not be in danger of losing his job because he believes that, that, that homosexuality is wrong. You know? And and I would like Facebook to stop persecuting me for having my faith and stop mocking me in front of my children. And I'd like to be able to go on vacation to the Rocky Mountains. And I'd like to have meat. I had to get the husband I had to channel the husband for a second there, you know. And I'd like To You know, it reminds me of a cartoon I saw 30-some years ago. And the cartoon was back in the days when pastors would go out to the sign in front of the church and they'd put up each week's sermon title, right? So the pastor had three of them up. You know, the cage was open and he was putting the letters in there. And the first one was, God loves me. Okay, that was the first sermon. The second one was, God loves you. And the third one was, God loves us. But he hadn't put the fourth one up yet. And isn't that the church you want to go to? You know, every month we have, on the first Sunday of the month, God loves me, and then God loves you, and then God loves us, and I'm sure we can come up with something. God loves Bloomington. You know, even Bloomington. And so that's what Kierkegaard says. He says what we do is we baptize all the normal middle-class American family values with the name Christianity. And then we make sure our churches worship that state of affairs. And we have a we have a network called Fox that will worship that state of affairs. And then rush limbaugh and you know we got all these dudes that they just see that to be a Christian is to have family values. And so, you know, this mother, she found a hubby that would go along with this, you know. And she talks about what a glorious leader he is. And he talks about what a wonderful mother. And they both celebrate the curriculum that she's chosen. And and life goes on until those children become high schoolers. And guess what? It just doesn't go well. Because the children actually don't have faith in anything but family values. You know, and I hate to tell you this, but there actually is a distinction between family values and the cross of Jesus Christ. <laughs> you know, it's like, whoa! <laughs> you know, what happened? I thought we were chugga-chugga-chugging along. I thought the tracks were this far from each other. I thought you couldn't jump the tracks. I thought the switches were all thrown down the main line. And we go chug, 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 chug. And then all of a sudden, our kids turn out to be sinners. Well, how do you deal with a sinful high school student? It's messy. They haven't learned how to hide it yet. <laughs> you know? And you're like, well, I don't know. And, you're, and your wife is, what do you mean you don't know? And you say, well, sweetie, I, this is my first high school student. So, well, you're supposed to know. all of a sudden, the whole thing blows to smithereens. Because as it happened, we didn't train our children to suffer and take up their cross and follow him. So when our children are rebuked or admonished, it's like, that's not what I signed up for. I mean, honestly, people, I'm giving you lots of biographies of people in this church right now. Right? All of a sudden, turns out your, your oldest daughter is actually a snot. A cute snot, but a snot nevertheless. And so somebody comes up to your hubby and says, Do you know your oldest daughter's a snot? <laughs> you know, not you, Lizzie. You're always sweet. <laughs> but I'd, I'd be thinking about one oldest daughter. Won't tell you who. And I say things like that occasionally because it just makes all of you tremble. You know. And it's helpful. If I gave you the name, only one of you would have to tremble. You know. This way, it's just like, no ollie ollie and freeze on this one. And so all of a sudden, the church, which with each of our families as our children grows, the church has to decide whether it believes in family values or whether it believes in the kingdom of God. And if it believes in the kingdom of God, you know what it does? It disciplines our children. Now, I didn't know he was going to be here this morning, and poor Taylor. But I'm going to tell the same story in this service I told in the first one. Because what good would it be for you to think that the pastor's the one guy that doesn't have to be shamed? Haven't we had enough of that already? Churches where the pastor is the one we pay to be pious to prove it doesn't pay to be pious. And so I remember when Taylor was in high school, two elders, and boy, they sure thought they were something special. They came over to my house and went down to my son's bedroom and they gave him a talking to. And they barred him from the Lord's Supper. And then they had the audacity to come up to my room where I was sitting and tell me they were concerned about my son's soul. And I sat there thinking to myself, you can imagine, they don't know Taylor. Now listen. I could go on and on and on illustrating our refusal to take up our cross and follow Jesus. I could illustrate it with the way you write at the university. I could illustrate it with the Facebook things that you engage in. Boy, could I illustrate it with Instagram. And you just... You just go on and on, and you think nobody sees you. God doesn't have any eyes. God doesn't have any ears, and it's because your God is an idol. You made him yourself. Of course he can't see. You with me? It's because he's not God. Then you choose a church where you can fall asleep every Sunday. Right, George? Just wanted to make sure you were here. (laughs) I wasn't going to pick on Bob. Where's Bob? Is he gone to the world? Yeah, I think he's gone. (laughs) We all fall asleep in church, and there's nothing wrong with that, as long as what? As long as our hearts are on pilgrimage. As long as we are not refusing to take up our cross. If you refuse to take up your cross on social media, at work, in your marriage with your wife, with your children, if you refuse to allow the church to put the cross on your children, as I did, okay, and I can go on and on and on about this, then our text has absolutely no meaning for you. Do you understand this? Because our text says, for in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. Now, every place in Scripture where when you read it, your natural reaction is to go, a da," You should stop because it's God's Word, and you should assume that your tendency to go, a da" is an indication that you are dead to that truth. Because God's Word is sharp, sharper than a two-edged sword. And so if our tendency is to read this, for in hope we've been, but hope that is seen is not hope and we go, duh, right? We should go back and think, why am I going duh to something Scripture says? Well, here's the reason. All of us redefine hope as being what is seen. And we redefine what is seen to be hope. Does this make sense to you? Your best life now. And if you were to ask Joel Osteen whether or not his best life now his hope, he'd say, oh, yeah, it's so hopeful. And he'd just smile, smile, smile. And a smile would be so hopeful. Then his wife would come in with her beautiful long blonde hair, and she'd smile, he'd smile. And you go into conservative reform churches, and every sermon is on grace. Every single sermon. God's so graceful, you wouldn't believe how graceful God is. God is more graceful than than you could ever imagine. God's grace and your grace and my grace, I'm graceful to you, and you preach gracefully, and I will listen gracefully. And grace abounds. And nobody ever says to the chief of sinners because that's a cosmic bummer, you know? Do you know that the thing that kills me every single sermon is when one of our pastors, usually Jody, starts praying a prayer of confession. And every single Sunday, I just think, dude, would you please give it up? I mean, didn't we do that last week? do we always have to be confessing our sins? And you say, oh, you don't really think that. <laughs> and I say, oh, yeah, I do. Now, I'll let you know on a little secret. Part of the reason I do that is I've, I'm so sick of you people complaining about the prayer of Confession. And so I wear your complaints every moment of every worship service. I'm hypersensitive to your impatience with sin. Right? I mean, we, we, in the first couple of years of this church, we lost a really solid, wonderful Taylor University graduate, rich man. And he left because of our prayers of confession. It wasn't biblical. And so he stayed home and had small groups in his house, led by a guy with a very funny name, actually, who was involved with a ministry called Grace. And so he stayed home because we had a prayer of confession, and he had a small group, and it was called Grace This or Grace That or, you know, Endless Grace, Eternal Grace, Infinite Grace. I don't know what it was called, but something about grace. Grace. And of course, the one thing you know was not true about those small group meetings is you know there was no grace. Because grace only abounds to the chief of sinners, and he would not sit in worship under a prayer of confession. Do you you get this? And so, what we are always doing is we're always trying to have hope without hope. We're always trying to have hope in the present. About things we have our hands grasping. And we are unwilling for hope to be deferred. We're unwilling to desire things that we can't control. Why? Because things you can't control, what's the sense of desiring them if you don't have control over them? And so what we do is we cheapen every goodie that God intends for us. We cheapen grace, we cheapen hope, we cheapen We cheapen holiness, we cheapen submission, we cheapen kindness. Everything is leveled. It's absolutely decimated, and it's about that thick. And we walk around all chipper because we're just lying and lying and lying. And why are we doing it? Well, because we actually don't want to have to hope. We want hope without having to have hope. Right? Do you get it? So, as I was preparing, I was remembering another story, and this son isn't here today. i got to get the way he actually said it just right. Um, So, uh, Don Jared, you remember his name, our wonderful elder up in Wisconsin, his son played in the UW marching band and they have a concert, I don't know, every winter, December, I think it is. And so he gave us two tickets. We only got to Mary Lee and Mary and the girls had something they were going to do. So I was going to take Joseph. Well, Joseph was so excited. You know, they got trombones, and they got trumpets, and they march, and they do flags. And drums! Especially drums, you know. They got drums, big, big drums. And so... Um, We told him that it was on such and such a date. Well, dates don't mean anything to children. And then it got down to next week. And then it got down to, um, you know, I don't know where that story is. I'm trying to remember. I think I'll just have to tell it without. um, Maybe I didn't even put it in. Just a second. Let me look here. Anyhow, it got down. Huh. One more check and then I'll be done. Yeah, I didn't indent it. Okay. So he talked about how much fun we were going to have, and each day he'd ask how much longer till Daddy and I go to the band concert, Mommy. Finally, the day before the concert, he got it into his head that tomorrow was the big day. He couldn't wait. The day of the concert, he was up early in the morning, and he came flying up to Mary Lee, and he said to her, you know what day this is, Mommy? No, what day is it, Joe boy? This is tomorrow, he exclaimed. And I think that's such a perfect illustration of the beauty of the resurrection. This is tomorrow. But people, you can't have any hope in the resurrection if you've demanded your best life now. You have to confess the broken nature of this world if you're going to have hope. You have to see your suffering. Come on. You have to see your failures. You have to see your degradation. You have to see you are ashamed both at Jesus and his words. You have to watch your body break down. You have to see that you actually are not a husband of fidelity. You have to see that you are not a mother of contentment. How on earth are you going to have your heart on pilgrimage for heaven if you have your best life now? And everybody around you knows you don't have your best life now. Nobody else is fooled by your optimism about your sins or about your children's sins. Right? Come on. Come on. Come on. Give me your heart. Give me your heart. You know, I could talk about diseases that we suffer under. And I could talk about persecution. One of the things that really irritates me today about conservative politics is that so many Christians make the backbone of it up. And conservative politics is all about bitterness. It's just all about how unfair everything is, because didn't our forefathers believe in God, and aren't we being robbed of our First Amendment rights? It's like, okay, yeah, yeah. But honestly, did you really expect something different? I mean, really? Did you really think that America was the one place in the history of the world that it, would be, that it would be safe to be taking up your cross for Christ without having to take up your cross for Christ? Well, I don't care if I have to take up my cross for Christ as long as it's like high blood pressure. In other words, nobody gives it to me. You know, I just don't want other people. I don't want our nation giving up our religious freedom. Dude, come on. Have you ever known a nation that hasn't taken away people's religious freedom? Doesn't the state devour everything in every country that has ever existed? Isn't that the purpose of a state? You know, it opens its mouth and eats its citizens. And the only thing that changes is you know, what kind of ketchup and relish it uses on you, how it cooks you. Look, I'm not a fatalist. I do believe in Christian statesmanship. I do believe that we should defend the First Amendment. But how have we gotten to the point as Christians where we think that to live the Christian life is to escape hope, is to not need hope, is to have your best life now? How does this work? And so I ask you, do you see why all of nature is groaning? Do you see it? Do you see why the whole of creation is eagerly awaiting the coming back of the new heaven and the new earth? Do you see that? Now, will you be in solidarity with creation, joining it and groaning? You know what Calvin says about this text? Calvin says that God has commanded that every Christian have two emotions. One of them is groaning, and one is hope. You can't have hope if you aren't groaning. And you say, well, what am I supposed to groan about? I'm in the prime of life, you know? Yeah, somebody that's old like you, you know? I mean, yeah, that's, you know. (laughs) It is dangerous preaching to that man. <laughs> he lives in my head and I live in his. He, he spent his life preaching. So, anyhow, listen. Listen to me. Completely serious. Are you willing to live a life of hope? Or must you have your best life now? Are you willing to live a life of hope? Hope. What is hope? Well, hope is not having it. <laughs> you know, It's not having the, what you want. That's what hope is, okay? So in other words, are you willing to live your life Wanting things that you can't have until God gives them to you in the kingdom of heaven. Or you have to have your best life now. Knock yourself off. So last night, I woke up in the middle of the night. Are you ready for this? And I... I said to Mary Lee, Lover, she woke up immediately. I said, Hold my hand. Would you please hold my hand? Now, why did I want my wife to hold my hand last night? Do you have any idea? It was because I had the most sinful, awful dream. And so, what are you going to say? You're going to say, well, it's just a dream. Where does a sinful, awful dream come from? <sighs> Out of the heart, the mind dreams. Isn't it awful the things that we find out we desire in our dreams? Are you willing to live a life of hope? Hope that in heaven there will be no more dreams like that. God doesn't allow it. A Christian desires three things with regard to sin. Justification that it will not Condemn sanctification that it will not rain reIGn that it won 't rain and glorification that it will not be i 'm almost done. Um, So I want to talk to you about death a little bit. Because I'm convinced it's, it, during the years since we buried my brothers when I was a little kid and today that there has been a great uh, uh, oppression of groaning particularly focused on death. That we've hidden it, that we've humiliated death, that we've lied about it, We've cosseted it. We've bracketed it. It is as minimalistic and unbearably light today as it could possibly be. All right? But if there's ever any place that hope is at its most beautiful, it is at the grave. And I love graves because the grave is the one place where you don't lie. You know, you can try to put a good face on a marriage, a wedding ceremony. You know, I've gone through enough of them to know what, what, what is really going on there. You know, and it is the definition of bait and switch. I mean, let's be honest about this, right? And you know that when you get married, you know, it can appear to be pretty, nice, happy, but you know there's a lot of hard work ahead of you. But at the grave, nobody, nobody is in any way concerned about what people are going to think if this is sad. Everybody is congruent with all of creation, mourning and groaning. At the graveside, that's the reason unbelievers don't want to have burial. Boom! No! No! I'm going to kill myself. My doctor's going to give me the pills, and then I'm going to be cremated, and there's not going to be any fuss about me, right? It's so helpful. Listen, at the grave. There is a beauty and a hopefulness that there never is anywhere else in life. Because the only thing that is a comfort to us at the grave is the kingdom of God and the resurrection. And every time, my dad, at the end of his book on death, he ends with a burpee seed catalog. It's my favorite part of the book. And he talks about going out in the winter, you know and he goes up to a big red mailbox at the end, of, and he's forgotten that he doesn't have shoes on, right? And it's the middle of the winter up in Chicago. And he goes up there and he pulls the burpee seed catalog out of the mailbox, opens it up, and he forgets who he is and where he is and that he doesn't have any shoes on. And he's completely caught up in the pictures of the big boys and the better big boys and the great, Big better, big boys, you know, and, 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 and all the flowers and all the squash. And that's what it's like at the grave. In the grave, the only thing that we can have is hope because nothing we want is there. We don't have what we want at the grave. We have just lost it. And, you know, you think about women here who have miscarried. And, you know, you you think about how women want their children to show that they're godly and to be saved, right? That's what mothers want, their children to be saved. And then you think about all the miscarriages and stillborns we've had as a church. And you think, how hopeful that some of our children are in heaven in the presence of the Lord. And how hopeful that we don't have to worry about them. How wonderful that we don't have to see our disgusting sins and our husband's disgusting sins in those children. Now that's hope. So I want to tell you about my daddy, Joe Bailey. As I was preparing to preach this text, I thought of a section of the book that means so much to me. And I cried during the first service while I read this. I want to warn you, I might do that, right? I don't like to listen to my dad's tapes because it's overwhelming. I cannot bear hearing my father's voice. I just can't bear it. And you'll get a picture of him as I read this. So, my older brother, Danny, um, we had a visitor, a missionary, who came and visited us, and Danny was just the perfect kid. And so the missionary said that Danny was a, uh, an angel boy. That's what he called him at the age of three. Well, when Danny got to be three and four, he got leukemia, right? And... In less than a year, he was dead, okay? And my dad writes about him dying and what happened afterwards in this book, uh, View from a Hearse," that we actually have. If you want, it's on death. And here's what my dad writes. He says, in the spring of 1957, so I was born in 53, my brother was born in 52. In the spring of 57... Dad says, I sat in the waiting room of Dr. Irving Woolman, hematologist at Philadelphia Children's Hospital. The day before, we had buried, did you hear that? The day before, we had buried our almost five-year-old who had died of leukemia. And now, I was waiting to thank the man who had been so kind to our little boy and to us during the nine months between diagnosis and death. Dr. Woolman's secretary beckoned to me. When I approached her desk, she did not tell me as I expected that the doctor would now see me. Instead, she looked toward a little boy playing on the floor. Well, In my preoccupation, I had failed to notice anybody else in the waiting room. She said to me quietly, he has the same problem your little boy had. I sat down next to the little boy's mother. We were far enough away from him, and we talked softly enough that he could not hear us. I said to her, it's hard bringing him in here every two weeks for these tests, isn't it? I didn't ask a question. I stated a fact. The uncertainty whether a child is still in remission or the fearful cells will reappear under the microscope makes the mind run wild hard. She was silent for a moment. I die every time. And now he's beginning to sense that something's wrong. Her voice trailed off. It's good to know, isn't it? I spoke slowly, choosing my words with unusual care, that even though the medical outlook is hopeless, we can have hope our children in such a situation. We can be sure that after our child dies, he'll be completely removed from sickness and suffering and everything like that, and be completely well and happy. The woman replied, if I could only believe that, but I don't. When he dies, I'll just have to cover him up with dirt and forget I ever had him. She turned back to watching her little boy push a toy auto on the floor. I didn't want to say it. I wanted to leave her alone with her apprehension. I wanted to be alone with my grief. But I was compelled to speak, perhaps with the same compulsion that made me write this book. Dad said to her, I'm glad I don't feel that way. Why? This time she didn't turn toward me, but kept watching her child. Dad answered, because we covered our little boy up with dirt yesterday afternoon. (laughs) And I'm in here to thank Dr. Woolman for his kindness today. I'm glad she didn't say, I'm sorry. She was looking straight at me now, and she said, you look like a rational person. How can you possibly believe that the death of a man or a little boy is any different from the death of an animal? Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly, eagerly for it, eagerly. We wait eagerly for it. You want to know whether or not you're a Christian? huh? (laughs) A pointed question for you, Mr. Wesley. Where's your hope? It is impossible to be a Christian without hope. The very definition of a Christian is someone who has signed up to groan and to hope, to see what life is. Here's an idea open your stinking eyes. open your eyes look at your sin look at your mama's sin look at your papa's sin look at your grandfather's sin look at your little tiny baby's sin <laughs> you know look at how broken all those disgusting pastors are who talk about how broken they are look at your president how could you not groan? And I voted for him. Don't worry, it's not a political statement, but I mean honestly, oh the dignity of the United States of America now. First, we elected a black man and we were so busy patting ourselves on the shoulder that when then we elected Donald Trump, <laughs> you know, <laughs> we took our eye off the ball. Come on. I'm not being political. But how can we not see how all of creation is groaning and that our homes are groaning? It's not that there isn't contentment and happiness and joy in our homes, but the best joy is when a good joke is told. Because jokes mediate the tension between what we know we were made to be and what we actually are. Did you not know that's the purpose of a joke? Some of you are humorless, and that's because you have no hope. And you don't have any hope because you don't groan. All right, all right, all right. I'm going to read uh, one more poem by my dad, and people tell me my dad's a bad poet, and that might be the case, but you know, I remember his poems, and they're helpful. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read you one of my dad's poems. It's, it's, it's atrocious. It's putrid poetry. You like the alliteration, Brandon? Yeah, yeah. This is called a psalm of anticipation. Lord Christ, your servant Martin Luther said he only had two days on his calendar, today and that day. And dad says, and that's what I want too. And I want to live today for that day. I've never forgotten that. Then Hebrews 10, beginning with verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Huh? Huh? Let's pray. Father, We are spoiled children. We want our own way. We want our best life now. We don't want to live on pilgrimage. We're bitter over the shame of the cross and of Jesus. But Father, we do take such joy in the kingdom of heaven, the word of God, the fellowship of the saints, the communion of the Lord's table. And, Father, in music, what joy. Father, would you please prune us so that we as a church and as families and marriages and singles and individuals, so that we'll be more fruitful. And would you give us joy when men and women confess sin? Would you give us joy when we receive admonishments and rebukes? Father, set our hearts on pilgrimage, and may it be the kingdom of God that we long for and not the kingdom of this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.